Welcome to the Do Good to Lead Well podcast. If you're passionate about mastering self-leadership, then you're in the right place. I have always been curious about and fascinated by the pursuit of leadership excellence. This is why I pursued my PhD in psychology with a specialization in business, and I've continued to dedicate my career to understanding the science and practice of positive leadership. My name is Craig Dowden. I'm a best-selling author, award-winning keynote speaker, executive coach, and member of the Forbes Coaches Council. Each week, I'll bring you world-class content on the science and practice of positive leadership. Through my conversations with best-selling authors, TED speakers, and top CEOs, you'll be able to leverage their insights and experience so you can maximize your potential and be the leader the world needs you to be. Good afternoon, everyone, and welcome to another edition of the Do Good to Lead Well Through Crisis webinar series. My name is Craig Dowden, and absolutely thrilled that you've taken time out of your Wednesday afternoon to be here with us this afternoon. Really excited to engage in this uh, thought-provoking and valuable conversation with another incredible Canadian CEO. And for those of you love setting the context for these conversations before we begin, for those of you who have joined me and us before for these conversations, welcome back. Always awesome to have you here and love the interactivity uh, and the questions and the, and the energy that you bring to these discussions. For those of you who are new to this forum, welcome, a warm welcome. It's great to have you on board. To give a little bit of context, this was a series I launched before my first book, Do Good to Lead Well, The Science and Practice of Positive Leadership. And in the work that I do in my coaching and speaking work, I have the profound privilege to speak with top CEOs, TED speakers, best-selling authors from around the world. And so what I wanted to do was share their insights with, with a larger audience. And then when COVID started two years ago, roughly, people that I was, work, were, I was working with. So what do we do? How do we navigate through this, this incredible period of change and disruption? And so wanted to rebrand the, the webinar series as Do Good to Lead Well Through Crisis. And over this time, I've spoken with over 65 top CEOs, best-selling authors, TED speakers. And today is no exception. I'm really excited uh, that Dr. Graham Scher has agreed to join us, the CEO of Canadian Blood, Blood Services. So Dr. Scher is the, the CEO of Canadian Blood Services. He's been with the organization since its inception in 1998. He first served as Vice President of Medical, Scientific, and Clinical Management and was appointed CEO in June of 2001. He's a recognized expert in transfusion medicine and science and is a sought after speaker, both nationally and internationally. He sits on a number of blood systems and healthcare related boards and advisory bodies and has provided consulting to support to other countries in the transformation of their blood systems. And late last year, Dr. Shear was named to the Order of Canada, which is one of the highest civilian honors in our country. So with that, and I can't do justice to the complete resume, but Graham, thank you so, so much for joining us. It's an absolute pleasure to have you with us this afternoon. Oh, the pleasure is mine, Craig. Thanks for the opportunity. And I'm hoping I can share with the audience and 
uh, those folk interested in leading in interesting times, a couple of uh, my experiences. Uh, I know that you've had many incredible speakers before, so I'm really pleased to be part of the series. Well, uh, you're most welcome, and, and the pleasure is all mine. And just for everyone joining us, uh, Graham has kindly agreed to take your questions. So take advantage of this opportunity to speak with one of Canada's uh, most respected CEOs, top business leaders, and 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 highly experienced in the international stage as well. So Graham, I I, I want to touch on. I mean, the Order of Canada. That's a phenomenal. Uh, recognition. So uh, if, if you don't mind sharing, I just, I, I, I'd love to hear what that experience was like getting that call, that that whole process for you. I, I just think it's, uh, it's absolutely wonderful. Well, thank you. I have to say, uh, I've known this now for about three months and I, I am still incredibly humbled at, at the honor. I, so I received a call from the office of the, the Chancellery of the Governor General um, completely out of the blue, and uh, the call was to uh, see if I was uh, Dr. Graham Sher, and I said, yes, I am, and she started saying something about the Order of Canada, and I, I didn't respond. I was dumbstruck into silence on the phone, and she said, Dr. Sher, do you know anything about the Order of Canada? And I said, yes, I've previously nominated some people, and she said, well, I'm calling to tell you that you've been nominated, and I was I was literally dumbstruck. I was emotional. Um, I was humbled. And as I've reflected on it since then, uh, while obviously the honor is bestowed on me, I view it very much as an honor on my entire organization and the privilege that I've had working with incredible people over just over two decades now and the contribution that we have been able to make to the public health system in this country and coming from a place of crisis and failure, which our predecessor organization was. Um, as I say, I know the honor is bestowed on me, but I very much feel that it is a collectively earned one. And, and my last point, Craig, would be, although I've been in Canada for 30 plus years now, in some ways I still think of myself as an immigrant. I think of where I came from and the fact that my adopted country would seek to honor me with one of its highest awards is just adds to the humbling nature of, of the recognition. So very profound and, and very moving. Well, uh, and uh, very well deserved and just, uh, it's just a fantastic, uh, rec <clears throat> excuse me, recognition, as you say. And and I'm curious, as, as, as I shared at the outset, you know, two years in with COVID and we continue to navigate through this pandemic, I, I'm curious, what's your experience been like being the CEO of Canadian Blood Services and what you've seen and 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 the challenges that you've faced and and uh, both within your organization as well as serving Canadians more broadly. You know, I, there is not a part of society that has not been touched by the pandemic. I, there is not a single sector, there is not a single industry, there is not a single part of the the world that hasn't been dramatically impacted. And so you know, one begins by saying we're literally all in this together. But our organization is in a very interesting position. So we're obviously in the healthcare system. Our primary mandate is to collect, manufacture, and distribute life-saving products to every hospital in the country. There is no alternative source for a hospital or a physician to go to when they want to prescribe products for their patients, whether they're blood products or plasma products or stem cells for transplantation purposes or uh, supporting organ transplantation. These are all 
parts of the life-saving uh, products and services that we provide to hundreds of thousands of Canadians uh, every year in need of blood and blood products. So, you know, that poses on our organization this burden of we, we're having to be there at all times through thick and thin, through clarity and uncertainty, uh, and make sure that we can deliver products and services to patients at all times. And what the pandemic has done for us, same as it's done for many other organizations, you know, we've had to deal with supply chain disruptions and we've had to do with uh, staffing challenges as people have been home uh, looking after loved ones or taking care of uh, COVID impacted uh, family members or friends or being sick themselves. At the same time as all of that, we've had to make sure that we can bring blood donors and plasma donors into our physical locations where we have to collect blood from and do all the processing and the testing. And so we had to face a series of challenges is how do we convey to the public, certainly in the early months in the first year of the pandemic, that this is still a safe environment to come into when everything around us was being shut down. Every facility was being shuttered and people were being told to stay home and people were being told not to go into work and, you know, save and except for the emergency department and some hospitals, there was not a lot going on in the early months of the pandemic. We had to keep operating. We had to provide uh, services so that people could come in and donate blood. And that was an enormous challenge in the early days, weeks and months of the pandemic. All our administrative staff, of course, were uh, immediately started working from home and we've had to adapt like every other organization in the world. But we had this very large cohort of, of staff who had to keep showing up at work, keep working on the front lines. And our role was to make sure they felt safe and they created a safe environment so that voluntary blood donors would come in and keep doing what they need to do. And that is provide us with their products that we could then turn into life-saving therapies for patients. So just a myriad of challenges on a whole uh, slew of fronts, many of which are faced by organizations in all sectors right across society. But I think in some ways we had these added dimensions of we're the only game in town. If you can think of us in the, that term, there is nowhere else to go. So if we couldn't keep delivering products and services, patients were going to go without care. And there was still emergency care being provided. Surgeries and motor vehicle accidents were still happening. And so we needed to be there at all times. And, and that has certainly caused us to pay exquisite attention to some of our business continuity capabilities, what it means to keep a workforce motivated when the world around them is, is really uncertain and, and feels very unsafe. And we can unpack some of that uh, through the rest of the discussion. But it was it was a it was and still is a very significant challenge. And of course, the nature of the challenge has changed over the two years. Uh, and what we were dealing with two years ago is very different from what we're dealing with now. No, absolutely. Well, and I already have a question <laughs> from Richard, which I think is a great one. Said, "Wow, really appreciated that you highlighted it early on with people being, as you say, the only game in town. So how?" as the world around them was you know unsafe and everything was closing down what did you learn through that process and how were you able to keep um your staff feeling secure so that they could do their life-saving work um in, in their roles 
Well, the, the first comment I would make, and I've made this to my organization a thousand times, and you can never say it enough, we have incredibly committed uh, individuals. People often come to work at Canadian Blood Services because of the cause and because of the incredible mission that we are here to represent. But that is never something we can take for granted. As much as people are passionate about and committed to the work that they do, and we talk about what we do matters, uh, and that is true, and I say that all the time, we had to make sure as leaders that we were creating an environment that people felt as safe as was possible. So very early on, we began to apply the most rigorous approaches to basic public health measures. This is long before vaccines came along. We made sure we had physical distancing requirements. We were early adopters of personal protective equipment. We were fighting tooth and nail in the early weeks to get hold of suitable masks so that our staff could feel they had them. And of course, looking back now, that seems so trite because masks are so widely available now. But in the early months, of course, organizations were not necessarily able to get their hands on things like personal protective equipment. And we made modifications to our work environment and we made sure that donors, when they came into our environment, were, were made to feel as safe as possible. And I'll just give you one example. You know, fast forward a year into the pandemic when vaccines were becoming uh, widely available. Of course, we all know Canada struggled in the early weeks and months, but once they became widely available, we took a position at Canadian Blood Services that we were going to make this a fully vaccinated work environment because we felt that was one way we could offer not only to our employees, but to the public with whom we were interacting a signal that this was a safe place and we took these issues really seriously. So we adopted a mandatory vaccination policy and took us several months to get it implemented and make sure that our staff were all vaccinated. But these decisions were the sorts of decisions and there's many others around that, that you know we, we deliberated over, we reflected on the pros and the cons, we understand things like hesitancy and people's you know decisions around choice. But at the end of the day, we felt we had a commitment to the broader society in which we operate to reflect both internally and externally that we were going to create the safest possible environment. And I think that that has been a, a consistent theme in everything we've done throughout the pandemic. Mm, that's, that's, that's amazing. And as you're saying, thinking through the different, all the different issues and collectively uh, analyzing, understanding the context and say, okay, well now where are we going to land on that? I think that's really, really powerful. You you talked about this earlier. I'm really happy that you did, Graham, in terms of just, so how do you motivate? Because one of the fascinating questions that I, that I get to talk about in the work that I do is really almost pre-pandemic leadership styles, right? And then, and then as we went into the pandemic, so what are your thoughts in terms of the qualities that leaders need to possess to navigate through a crisis? Are they different than what's required in kind of quote unquote normal times or are certain ones amplified? I'd love to get your, your take on how to lead effectively during periods of profound disruption. Yeah, and I, I you know, really like the way you frame that question because for me, in some ways, the, the successes of leadership in times of dramatic disruption should not be radically different than that which they are in calmer times. If we suddenly 
take on a new persona and we put on a new garment because we're now going to be a leader in crisis as opposed to a leader in more uh, stable or less turbulent times. I think there's something wrong in that dimension. I definitely believe, though, one has to amplify certain leadership attributes. And I'll, I'll give you a couple that I think I reflect on as I look back over the last couple of years. So I'm, I'm a huge believer in uh, communication and narrative and making sure that one stays in touch with one's organizations at all times. I pride myself on that. I prided myself on that before the pandemic, and it's something we've paid exquisite attention to. But I think it's, so that's not new. Mm -hmm. It's the willingness, though, to engage in conversation on uncertainty. So when, you know, and there's so many periods in the pandemic that I can think about, but when we didn't know what the answer was, or we didn't know what the next policy position of a particular provincial government or regional health authority may be, we made sure that we conveyed to our organization the uncertainty in which we were trying to make decisions. We were not trying to convey absolute certainty and you know we know everything and just listen to us all will be good we actually spoke very openly about the 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 decisions that we were struggling to make because the information around us was changing so rapidly and there was so much uncertainty and we conveyed the options that we were examining and we felt that the more we did that the more we found the organization responded in a positive way. They weren't looking for certainty and precision. They mm. were wanting to know that all the considerations were being taken into account. They wanted to know that their concerns were being given a due consideration. So I engaged like many other leaders did in regular town halls across the organization, bilateral and multilateral feedbacks. We made sure leaders were available to their frontline staff. And we paid exquisite attention to the stressors that people were bringing from their home environment into the work environment. Whether they were working remotely or whether they were working on the front line, we spoke a lot about caregiver leave and we created leave processes and leave uh, capacity that we never had in the uh, organization before. But we wanted to make sure that our staff understood when we said we would be there for them, we would put money and processes and protocols in place to show that we were there for them. We talked with a great degree of vulnerability about what we ourselves, I mean, I spoke about the own struggles I was having with family members and, and challenges with you know the home life and and I, I felt the more we were expressing vulnerability, the more we were operating from a place of deep empathy, the more we were able to keep the organization engaged and motivated. Um, the more we acknowledged uncertainty, I actually found people rallied to that. They didn't run away thinking, God, management doesn't know what they're doing here. They actually accepted that as the complexity in which the decision making was being made. So so for me, it's sort of amplifying the empathy, amplifying the, the real-time communication. And it's all about on honesty and transparency and being really frank when you don't know what the right answer is because it's just so uncertain out there. And I think though, for me, I would say personally and as a leadership group, those are the attributes we dialed up and we relied on and continue to do this day. 
they're not new, they shouldn't be there, they shouldn't be absent in a karma time, they should always be part of one's leadership uh, armamentarium, but I do think you rely more heavily on, on empathy and compassion and, and uh, vulnerability than perhaps one does in, when times are calmer. Well, got lots of great feedback on that and thank you, amazing answer. And there's several follow-up questions. Uh, and, and I have one I'm, I'm curious, um, because I, I love your observation earlier as well, Graham, about, well, if you have a different style during crisis versus quote unquote normal times. And I'm, I'm curious to your take on this because I've had this discussion more and more with people and around the authentic leader. So, you know, and that when you're authentic in times of crisis, then because of that authenticity, like people can have elevated confidence in you because they know who you are. So am I taking that point that you were making earlier a little too far and applying it there? Or do you see parallels in that in terms of, because as you said, if you have one style in crisis and one, there's a disconnect. I was curious about does, is that around authenticity and then also confidence? Hey, I, I know where this person is going to take us. Absolutely. I think that is exactly the authenticity. And to me, it's I'm sure we were all, we are all different for the last two years than we've been prior to the pandemic. That, that's natural. But I don't think our fundamentals as human beings have changed that much. And in fact, for me, the authenticity derives from the fact that I was willing to stand in front of my organization time and time and time again and say, I am struggling with this. I am uncertain what to do given X, Y, and Z. Here's what I think is the best course of action. And here's what we will do to change if the decision we make isn't the right one. Yeah. And, you know, and again, there's probably a dozen examples I can use to exemplify that. But I think that is very much the authenticity um, that, that goes along with, you know, being vulnerable and compassionate. And yet, at the same time, being focused on performance because we have a job to do. We have product we have to get out the door to save patients' lives. So it's not as if we said performance is unimportant. It's not as if we said we can't focus on operational metrics. We had to focus on all of those. But how do you do that while at the same time paying real respect to and real demonstration of empathy for the impact that people are facing in their lives? And I love that and, and the linkage that you made at the end as well around performance. And it reminds me of I spoke with Gerard Schmidt, the former CEO of Diebold Nixdorf. Uh, so global organization offices, I think it's 60 countries. And he talked about leading with the heart and the mind. And then you can and then you navigate across those different and you may differentially weight it. It sounds like a beautiful parallel with what you're talking about, Graham. We have, a, uh, we have a, a brand system and embedded in our brand system is a set of leadership commitments uh, that all leaders at Canadian Blood Services have to uh, act on. And we also have a set of values, uh, including integrity, uh, respect, uh, accountability, uh, adaptability. And our leadership commitments speak about leading with the head and the heart. And we use that phrase intentionally and purposefully. And in my mind, you can never say it enough times because there are times when the heart has to lead and the head will follow. But there are times 
when the head really has to guide as long as the heart is there supporting. So we talk about leading with head and heart. We talk about what we do matters. We, we relied heavily on our corporate values. And I think, you know, the brand system for me became a way of being. Mm-hmm. I believed it to be true before the pandemic, but I, I know that we've reflected during the pandemic of how profound our brand system is because all of those components, our mission, our vision, our values, our leadership commitments, our operating pillars, they all continue to hold true to this very day. And I think that has allowed us to keep the organization anchored in what we do really does matter. And we're not, these are not just words on a poster. These are how we actually behave here. Uh, And we're very, very proud of that brand system having sort of kept us, we believe, in a state of control throughout the pandemic. Well, and I love that. And and it's so fascinating to hear you talk about the leading with heart and the mind. And I think it's so important. And I find in my conversations and and, uh, as we tend to sometimes look at it as a dichotomy of, you know, well, I have to do this or and I love how you framed it in terms of the heart leads and then the mind is there. And then sometimes the mind lead leads and the heart has to be there at the same time. We can, these two are integral to our success as leaders. I've got so many questions. This is so fun. So I'm excited to Mike love that you commented on, Hey, if we said we didn't know, we said we didn't know, were you afraid that people were going to doubt your, your ability as a leadership team or be concerned that you didn't know where you were going? Like what, what gave you the fortitude to push ahead and say, hey, I don't know this? That's oh, an excellent question, Mike. Was I afraid? I, I don't, I honestly don't know if I was afraid, but there were times when I challenged myself to whether um, I and we would be better served if I conveyed certainty and conviction. Um, and where we were reasonably certain about a decision we were making, and I'll use the, you know, obviously a very controversial one, mandatory vaccinations, we felt after we had done our due diligence and our extensive analysis, we felt confident that it was the right decision for this organization at the right time, and we would be careful in how we implemented it. So there's an example where I felt comfortable conveying conviction and certainty in the decision we had made. But there were other times when it was unclear whether we needed to increase or decrease a particular public health measure because we weren't certain exactly what the epidemiology was at any one point in time or what public health might be advising in different parts of the country. So in times like that, I I felt very comfortable conveying the uncertainty and I never felt that I was demonstrating to the organization an equivocation in my leadership or our collective leadership. If anything, I felt we were conveying the complexity of the world in which we're all living. So it's a great question, Mike. I don't think I ever felt afraid that I was conveying um, uncertainty in my leadership. I was conveying uncertainty in the environment and the fact that that commands you know, real deep conviction of what you're doing here. uh, And it commands that you be honest about things you don't know and things that are evolving and decisions you might take today, but you may have to change next week when the epidemiology or the public health guidance changes around you. So yeah, it's a really excellent question, but I I don't think it caused me to be afraid. 
Uh, and sometimes actually, I think it actually added to my, my conviction of what we were trying to do. Well, and I love what you're sharing, and it is it's just a fabulous question. And and I love how you separated the you know the uncertainty. It's, it wasn't about uncertainty about the leadership. It was hey, this is the context. Exactly. And in my in my experience as well is that people the confidence goes up in leaders when they say hey, I, this is we're figuring this out, and then give some con share the context about this is why we don't know right now rather than trying to just blast through and have this you know aura of oh we've got this and really the context does not support that at all and it causes more the very thing people are trying to avoid by sounding confident actually has the opposite effect exactly that's exactly right. well and uh, i have another question uh from karen who said i love uh really appreciate the transparency so we've struggled in our organization about how do you how do you know how transparent to be and so recognize it's a big question any guideposts or tips about how as a leadership team you think through how transparent to be to the organization um, that's a really interesting question I don't know if there are limits on transparency to be honest but I'll, I'll answer it this way Karen you know, and I'll think about some of the decisions we we made in the last couple of years in, in uh, as a leadership team and, and during the pandemic. There is no doubt that a leadership team at some times has to close the door and think things through because there are, are data points that are incoming that are not yet able to be shared publicly. So to me, you know, being able to say we're evaluating a range of options, we're looking at all of the data points, we will convey our decisions as they emerge is being transparent. Not everything that is on my desk has to necessarily be made public to everybody. But, but I would say way more than not, we err on the side of saying, these are all the facts we have available to us. This is what we understand is the public health situation in this part of the country at this point in time, and it differs from this part of the country at this point in time, but we're going to make our decision based on the best interests of the whole organization. You lay it out in a way that uh, the staff, whether they're in management positions, leadership positions, or frontline positions, whether they're working remotely, whether they were working on the front lines, they understood the circumstances that we had available to us to make decisions. The sausage making, if you want, of, of the actual decision making can happen in the confines of the leadership team. I'm okay with that, but it's having people understand and having a direct line of sight into the factors that are informing the decision. That's to me what true transparency is. I don't think everyone wants to sit in on the executive meetings for two hours every week to understand what the executive team is doing or not. They want to know how those decisions are being made, what factors are being taken into account. Are my concerns that I'm raising through town halls and, and intranet forums and Yammer chat, are my concerns being listened to and are you weighing them in your decision making? And that's to me how transparent one needs to be it's a, it's a wonderful way of thinking of the question because I don't know if there's a limit on transparency, yeah. <laughs> but I don't know if that means 
that all 4,000 employees need to watch it on a Zoom call the executive team making their decisions. I don't think that that's what people are wanting or expecting, but they want to know that their their concerns are being factored in. Mm, well, and and I love uh, I'm in your camp as well around because in my experience, what I've seen. There are, and I love how you phrase it around there are no limits on transparency because I think, and to your point, people want to know, so what were the factors you considered making this decision? What was the thought process? And being transparent around and letting people know we don't have enough data at this time or what have you. I just think that is so powerful because rather than come to their own conclusions, they have a sense of, hey, this is what's going on. This is these are the types of decisions they're making. This is how they're making it. And now I can and then I can provide my feedback as well if I'd like in that process. So I think that's just so powerful how you how you broke that down, Graham. I have another question. <laughs> Not surprised. Tara really appreciated your linkage to empathy. And so uh, she was wondering, what do you say to people who are concerned that empathy gets in the way of making challenging decisions or uh, managing performance to the level you need because sometimes in her organization that that comes up so would love to get your take on that uh tara thanks for that um and i've talked to you about this before craig so i am a leader who loves the power of imagery and the power of narrative mm -hmm. i also happen to be by hobby uh, a very keen um, uh, travel photographer and so i use a lot of my imagery in my leadership and i'll uh, it's a bit difficult to do without the image on the screen here it's actually behind me behind this ear here um, <laughs> so i have a, a, a photograph a series of photographs of very very large sand dunes in the nama desert in southern africa and you might see behind my uh, right uh, shoulder uh, it's a little hard to see at the angle, but there's a sand dune late in the afternoon and the sun is setting. So this side of this face of the sand dune is in dark shadow and this face of the sand dune is lit by this beautiful setting sunlight. And it's a very high sand dune. It's hundreds of feet high. And there's hikers that are walking up that very fine ridge of the sand dune where the only place where you can really step because the sand is so soft. And I have used that image of these hikers traversing the, the two faces of the sand dune to say that the empathy and performance are a fine line. Mm -hmm. And in my opinion, leadership requires that you navigate that line between empathy and performance at all times. Mm -hmm. There are times when given a set of circumstances, you have to dial up the performance dial and say, I'm gonna be a little hard-nosed here because we have a performance challenge or we have a, an operational commitment we have to meet. And that may have to draw on the empathy reserve that I have hopefully built up with the organization. Mm. And there are other times when a decision is, you know what, we can sacrifice just a little bit of performance because the most important thing at this point in time is to pay attention to the emotional needs of the organization. So my empathy has to lead and I'm prepared to not sacrifice performance, but I'm prepared to put performance outcomes secondary to the focus on empathy. 
And for me, the effective leader is one who can navigate that line between empathy and performance at all times. It's never one trumping the other sort of without consideration. It's never about performance at all times trumps empathy or that empathy can always trump performance because then at some point the organization's not going to meet its objective. So for me, it's a, it's a, a very fine balance. It mm. needs to be calibrated to the circumstance and to the situation. And there is no recipe as to when I should dial up the empathy dial versus the performance dial. But it is being in tune with when you need to shift one to the other. And I think the more one can sort of think that way as a leader and the more one can keep one's empathy and performance focus finely balanced, I believe people will always step up when you're asking of them to really perform at a given point in time, you're drawing on that reserve of empathy you've built, but you've built it because there are other times your focus is deeply uh, and compassionately empathetic uh, and you're willing to say performance is important, but, but my, my, uh, my desire to make sure that the organization is sound physically, mentally, well-being is paid attention to, you've built up a capital and a reserve of empathy that you can draw on. So for me, it's, it's really, it's a fine balance. Well, and I love and receive. Thank you. Thank you. Awesome answer. Uh, so, uh, and for me, what I love a couple of things in particular is about, and so many valuable insights in, in, in your perspective, Graham, about keeping that top of mind, being intentional around the deployment of those two in the situation with the person with whom you're interacting. I think that's just absolutely leadership gold right there. And, and being aware of uh, how to connect with and engage with people. I love that idea of empathy reserve so that then we're building that trust, we're building that empathy and connection. And then there are times when we can draw almost like a bank account out of that and say, hey, and here's the context that's, that's driving that. I can see how that's just had such a powerful impact um, and, and, and would drive such high levels of engagement. I've got another question, <laughs> they keep flying in, so this is great. Sean, I really appreciated that you shared the values and in particular respect and accountability. And one of the challenges in, in their organization is that they found they have similar values in that way. And because of the pandemic, either through performance or because people have been under a lot of pressure, stress, they've almost lashed out and treated people disrespectfully. So how do you, what happens in those contexts if behavior steps outside of values? How have you navigated that? And you put in, I recognize this is a tough question. <laughs> yeah, it is it is a tough question, but it's an important one because, um, so I think values are sacrosanct. And I think if an organization has them, they can't just be words on a on a document, they have to be lived and experienced and talked about and engaged with at all times. So, you know, we have both integrity and respect are two of our five central values, collaboration, adaptability and excellence being the others. But if I focus about integrity and respect for a moment, because I think they're central to Sean's question, there is no doubt that the stress that all of us as human beings have been living under for the last couple of years 
has been brought into the work environment, it's impossible to not have been. So when you're dealing uh, with a set of circumstances at home where kids suddenly can't go to school, you've got an aging parent who might be in hospital with COVID and you can't see them, or you're worried about a relative somewhere who has to be quarantined and nobody's able to take care of them and you have to be the, the additional caregiver or whatever. I mean, these multiple sort of simultaneous stressors that are going on in people's lives and have been going on for the better part of two years now. Your spouse has lost a job and then suddenly all these, these threats are occurring in your home environment. You bring that into the work environment and people are going to be short-fused. People are going to be just that more triggered by challenging circumstances than they may be in less stressful times. So we too have had many situations where the values have been, if you want, challenged or infringed upon because suddenly I'm not so respectful to you or suddenly, you know, I'm just not quite as uh, in line with my integrity commitment as I might normally be displaying. And so for, for us, what we've tried to do when these situations have arisen is we've certainly made sure that our managers of people are always engaging with their employees to understand what is the set of triggers that might have caused this behavior to happen that would not normally you know, be experienced by this person and certainly wouldn't be in line with the organizational values or the leadership commitment. So we've tried at all times to have leaders engage with their team members in seeking to understand what might be contributing. We've talked at great length in our organization around mental well-being and the need to, to pay attention to one's own well-being and one's own resilience. Because if you aren't doing that, you can't possibly expect your staff to show up at work and be resilient and able to withstand everything. So for me, I think it's again contextualizing those if you want infringements of the values or those examples of behavior that you would not normally condone in the organization. And that's not to forgive them. That's not to say it's okay to be disrespectful because it's not. But if one seeks to understand the context, it's amazing how quickly you can understand where that person is coming from. And even a recognition of where they're coming from will cause them to recognize that their behavior was inappropriate and an appropriate apology or what have you may be answered. So I'm not suggesting for a minute that we forgive bad behaviors in times of stress and crisis, but I think one tries to contextualize them and at least understand the source and then engage in a series of conversations. So how can I help support you as the, as the person perhaps demonstrating this inappropriate behavior? And what has been the impact on the people who have been the recipients of this? And how do we course correct for that? So I, I think it's, again, it comes to that sort of empathy and compassion uh, phenomenon so much. Well, and I, I, I really appreciate how you're talking about approaching this from a place of curiosity and to fully understand the context and the triggers. I love that word as well. And then what I really take away from this is that, and then you're empowered to then, okay, so then we recognize what's driving behavior that is outside of the norm. And now we recognize, well, the root cause, what are some of the things that are that are creating that? And then how can we support 
preventing that happening in the future. And hey, that doesn't mean that this is no longer relevant or this is not, this isn't important. This is def so this is still unacceptable and we have to take those and learning from that, uh, I think that's just so powerful and can see how that really not only uh, elevates individual resiliency, organizational resiliency as well. So I love everything that you just shared. Have another comment and question. So Tina said, this has been such an inspiring conversation. So thank you, learning a lot. She's starting her leadership journey. So any advice, uh, just seeing leader, leaders today, it seems like a lot to manage. So any advice about how to uh, start and, and, and grow in her, in her leadership? Um, you know, I, thanks, Tina. I love having conversations with people who are beginning to embark on uh, leadership journeys. We've all been there at some point, and there's so many sort of ways I would like to engage in, in, in the conversation with somebody like Tina. Maybe just a couple of thoughts. The one, the one message I often try to impart on uh, individuals who are early in their leadership journeys is don't try to carve a path for yourself that you can say, I know exactly where I'm going for the next 10 years. I know exactly what I need to do. Because I think what, as a leader, one needs to be open to possibilities. All of us, I'm sure, have stories and, and leadership experiences where opportunities came along that perhaps were not part of the planned journey. But if you can identify them, you can reflect on them and seize those opportunities when and as appropriate, I believe that makes one a better uh, leader. One becomes much more adaptable uh, to the circumstances around one. And certainly that's been my uh, sort of leadership journey over my lifetime. If I had sort of followed what I thought was my career trajectory 25 years ago, I wouldn't be sitting here talking to you today as a CEO of a very large organization. I would have been a physician practicing at a bedside somewhere. So it's for me, it's about being open to possibilities. I would say it's also about, and it's what we've talked about, Craig, learning to lead with both head and heart, because I think that's the fundamental. If you can understand what it means to bring both head and heart into how you make decisions, how you engage with people, what your relationship with people is, I think that's the way to be a much more effective leader. And I, you know, there's no prescription for that. There's no, one can read many books, listen to webinars like this one, talk to uh, leaders who've been around for a little bit longer and, and certainly uh, reflect on their learnings and their wisdoms. But at the end of the day, it's also an individual journey. And I think one has to also understand, for me, what does it mean to engage with people? What are my strengths? What are my areas that require development? And never be afraid to develop never be afraid to engage with a coach, never be afraid to take advice from somebody else because we can all grow, we can all learn, doesn't matter how long you've been at this game. For me, it's a constant learning journey and I'm, I'm shameless at stealing good leadership ideas from other people. I, I have absolutely no qualms in doing that because I think that's one of the ways that we all grow and succeed. Well, I love your answer there. And Tina also says, thank you. That was fantastic. And uh, love your point about it being a lifelong journey. And I think that's really critical. And then recognizing that the leading with heart and with mind and, and how important both of those are to bring in every situation and recognize how we're going to deploy them. I think that's just so wonderfully 
uh, insightful. I have another, uh, and this was a question I was going to ask, and it came out in the chat as well in terms of, so what are some uh, practices that you that you do yourself to maintain your level of resilience? And then what are some things that you've brought to Canadian Blood Services that's really helped elevate the resilience of, of employees within the organization? Some of the practices you as CEO that you've seen some great returns. Uh, would love to get your take on that, Graham. I love that question and I'll tell you just before answering it, in many of the town halls that I've done over the last couple of years and we have you know, about a thousand people on each town hall and we try to get through as many questions as we can each time. You know, on numerous occasions, uh, folk have put that very question to me because I talk a lot about, you know, taking care of oneself and taking care of one's family and focusing on well-being, mental and physical and focusing on resilience. And more often than not, people have put the question right back to me in the town hall chat. So what are you doing, Graham? You know, we want to and so uh, thanks for that question. So a couple of things. Um, I did try to practice what I was preaching. I did try to uh, take care of my own physical as well as mental well-being. So um, I made sure that I was getting out on my bike as much as possible and trying to exercise. I made sure that certainly in the periods of the pandemic when uh, gyms were open that I was able to go to my I sort of go to a Pilates type gym class that I was able to go and do that because I found that that really gave me a way of just decompressing and, and trying to keep some balance in my life. I, as I said earlier, I'm a passionate travel photographer and of course I couldn't do that for the largest part of the pandemic. There was no uh, exciting travel to be done or to be had and so I had to find other ways of sort of reinvigorating some of my creativity because I use photography as a as a powerful way to regenerate my own uh, energy and to refocus me from from the stresses of my own work so I had to find other ways of you know making sure I could feel creative and feel uh, that I was still giving myself outlets um, I relied a lot on my my partner my wife we our kids have all left home and so it was really for most of the pandemic it was just the two of us and now our beautiful dog and so I made sure that the home environment was as 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 healthy and wholesome as it could be so you know all the sorts of simple things that I think are important there's no doubt that I put in extra hours there's no doubt that I was working you know weekends and nights and it's what is expected of somebody in a position like this in a time like this but I was very intentional of also taking time to just decompress and taking vacation time, even if there wasn't a vacation to go away on, but just being you know, willing to step aside from work and, and just uh, relax at home and read a good book or watch a binge watch a TV show or something. Because I think those small little things, particularly in a time like a pandemic, are so mission critical to retaining one's physical and mental well-being. Mm, no, absolutely. And I love the point around those micro behaviors, if you will, in terms of, as you say, sometimes they can seem small, yet the, the impact that they have are extraordinary and they can quickly get away from us and we can lose sight of that self-care, which is so vital, particularly in a position of leadership. So really appreciate your perspective on this. We've got left, the hour has flown by, it's less than 10 minutes left, so which is incredible. 
I would love to, I love closing uh, as we approach the close, Graham, to ask you, what is a key lesson you learned about yourself over the course of leading through this pandemic? And what's a core lesson you learned about Canadian Blood Services, your organization? Love to get your take on that. What has the pandemic taught you through that, that process? I'll start with the personal and then move to the organizational. So I guess if you had asked me this question before the pandemic even existed, uh, one of the things I might have spoken about as a leader and my own leadership style is thriving on ambiguity and uncertainty and complexity. Those have always been huge motivators for me. I love complexity. I love having to solve really complex uh, challenges for which there is no simple prescription. I really love the whole idea of ambiguity and strategic foresight and trying to think of different futures and, and how one needs to navigate as a leader. And so I always understood that as being a powerful motivator for me. And I think the pandemic brought that out in buckets because I think that was required of every leader because there was, if you ever thought there was certainty before, it was certainly taken away from you. Uh, during the pandemic. So I would say at the personal level, I, I learned that my comfort with ambiguity and uncertainty served me well. Um, I didn't, I mean, I, we all found ourselves adrift from time to time and I'm not pretending I was any different, but I, I, was, I was comforted by the fact that I'm able to remain calm in times of uncertainty. I'm able to examine a variety of uh, strategic options and, and futures and think about choices, uh, even if there is no simple uh, and easy solution to a given set of problems. So I think the pandemic showed me that I was able to draw on that leadership style of mine. And, and you know, I, I talked a lot about this, but I do believe I am an, a leader who, who practices empathy a lot. And I think I was able to demonstrate that vulnerability was a big part of how I got through this. Um, and I think those, uh, the, the pandemic has shown to me that those are absolutely essential leadership attributes. I believe that to be the case before, uh, but it's certainly that much more obvious to me since. At the organizational level, I'll maybe close with these couple of thoughts, Craig. So, as I said in my intro uh, uh, responses, you know, we are an organization that has a profound vision, a profound mission. We are here to save lives and there is nobody else who can do the work that we do. And that, that imposes on us an enormous uh, burden of responsibility, but also a profound commitment to doing excellent work. And I am so proud of the way this organization never lost sight of that throughout the pandemic. We knew that we needed to show up at work every day to collect, manufacture, test, and distribute the safest products for Canadian patients at all times, and that we couldn't take our eye off the ball, no matter how challenging the circumstances. And the organization time and time and time again showed up, you know, went through that challenge and delivered on the other end. The other piece that I'm so enormously proud of for this organization is early on in the pandemic, we put our hands up, figuratively speaking, 
and we spoke to all levels of government, the federal government, the provincial government, public health leaders in the country, and we said we are willing to go beyond what we normally do in the provision of blood and blood products to Canadian patients and leverage the capabilities that we have as a big player in the public health systems in this country to support pandemic activities. And one thing that we were asked to do by the federal government and a, sp a specific uh, uh, task force that it created, it's called the, the, the COVID-19 Immunity Task Force. This was a federal government initiated uh, endeavor to measure the level of COVID-2 antibodies in the Canadian population, both before vaccinations and after vaccinations. And we recognized we could help the governments, the federal, provincial, and public health uh, leaders in this country, we could help in that endeavor by leveraging some of the infrastructure, the capabilities, the expertise, and the technology that we have in our organization and do additional work to provide important public health information as we navigated our way through this pandemic. It's not something that we would have been doing before the pandemic, but the organization was able to leverage its capabilities, leverage its expertise and say, we will help contribute to the necessary science and knowledge that will allow the country to make good decisions around public health measures and things like vaccination. And to this day, we continue to provide that support to the immunity task force in Canada. And I just, it's just one example of the organization not only delivered what we are here to deliver, but we also stood up in times like this and said, if at all possible, we will help contribute in ways that go beyond our, our traditional responsibilities because we have a capability that can be leveraged for the betterment of society at a time like this. And, and again, it's just some you know small body of work, but we think it's had profound benefits to the country. And I think it's an example of how Canadian Blood Services believes that our responsibility is to be there at all times for all Canadians through crisis and through calmer, less turbulent times. Well, thank you. And so many comments like awesome, inspirational, loved, loved your insights, loved your energy, your passion. And I, I just echo that. It's just been an absolute pleasure, Graham, to speak with you so many powerful insights in terms of leadership and and how we relate to one another and things to keep top of mind as we continue to move through COVID. And I love the story you're sharing at the end around, well, how can we support and look broadly as you're sharing for Canadian Blood Services? We have capacity to help and support the people around us above and beyond the lane in which, and so we can grow. And I love that. And I think that's such a, a powerful takeaway. We've got about a minute or two left and so many comments coming in. Thank you. Any final words, Graham? This has just been an absolute privilege and pleasure for me. My, thank you, Craig, for the opportunity and thanks for all the folk who've dialed in to listen. Thanks for the great questions. Uh, my, my closing word would be stay safe, uh, stay well as a society. We will get through this, whatever the new normal looks like. It's not going to be without its own challenges. Uh, but we will we will come out uh, stronger and better at some future point. Well, said beautifully, couldn't think of uh, anything uh, better to, to close with. So thank you again. 
Thanks everyone. I really appreciate you taking the time this afternoon. Stay tuned for future guests coming on the, uh, the Do Good to Lead Well Through Crisis webinar series. Bye for now. Have a great afternoon. Take care, everyone. Stay Thanks, safe. Thanks, Bye. Thanks again, Graham. Bye for now. Thank you so much for joining me here today on Do Good to Lead Well. If you enjoyed today's podcast, please subscribe and leave a review. If you'd like to continue the conversation, you can follow me on Twitter at Craig Dowden or reach out via LinkedIn or email info at craigdowden.com. I look forward to meeting you here next week for another transformational episode.